Hi, and welcome to this audio edition of Polygamy, What Love Is This? with host Doris Hansen. On this program, we discuss polygamy and Mormon fundamentalism from a biblical Christian perspective. We talk about the history of polygamy, its modern-day fruit, share stories from people who have escaped polygamy, and talk about current events relating to polygamy. You can learn more about the video edition of this program at whatloveisthis.tv. And now, here's Doris. Welcome to our show tonight. This is Polygamy, What Love Is This? And I'm your host, Doris Hansen. And we are grateful that you've joined us tonight. And we hope that you enjoy what we have planned for you. You know, this is a, a telephone call-in show. And it means that after our discussion, after we are done talking with what we're talking, we're going to open our phone lines and invite you to call in and either ask questions or make comments according to the topic of our discussion. And our topic tonight is Joseph Smith and those places of gold. And before we begin our discussion, I'd like to remind our viewers of our disclaimer. Uh, our viewers need to know and keep in mind that Mormonism and Mormon polygamy was conceived by Joseph Smith. He contrived it, he practiced it, he prophesied it, he lied about it, and he was killed because of it. Today's polygamists are direct doctrinal descendants of their Joseph Smith's for salvation, uh, polygamy for salvation doctrine. And because of that fact, everything or anything to do with Joseph Smith has a direct bearing on our show. So although we desire um, for the mainline Mormons to watch our show and to appreciate the information that we disseminate here, they do need to remember that our show is primarily to bring evidence to polygamists that God never commanded polygamy through Joseph Smith or through anyone else. And because Joseph Smith is a self-proclaimed prophet of God, we are obligated to take a look at his person, at his character, at his integrity, and the honesty of the claims that he made. Last year, we invited tonight's guest to discuss the various versions of Joseph Smith's first vision account, and you can watch that online at whatloveisthis.tv, and that was shown on February 2nd of 2012. And so tonight, to get started on our discussion, I would like to introduce our returning guest, uh, author, uh, radio show host, and friend, Bill McKeever. Thanks again for coming. It's good to be with you, Doris. Thank you. We've got a, a kind of an exciting <laughs> presentation to show tonight, don't we? We do. <laughs> but before we get started, would you tell our viewers, you're, you're kind of involved with a lot of activity in this culture and, mm -hmm. and outreaches and so on. So why don't you tell our viewers some of the things you're doing? You have a web page and a radio show. Yeah, I, I founded uh, Mormonism Research Ministry back in 1979, and part of our outreach is... Uh, to not only educate the body of Christ as to what Mormonism teaches and how to talk with our Mormon friends and loved ones, but also to try and reach out to the Mormon people through outreaches on the streets, whether it's at a, you know, a Mormon pageant such as the Mormon Miracle Pageant or downtown. Uh, we have people that work with us at MRM that go downtown and talk to people uh, mm -hmm. on Temple Square, north of Temple Square. Uh, we also try to reach out to people through our website at mrm.org. Um, we put out a lot of printed material people can download off the website. And plus the radio show, Viewpoint on Mormonism, has certainly mm -hmm. been reaching a lot of people, not only here in the Salt Lake area, but 
because of the technology that we have nowadays, yeah, we have people yeah. that are listening to it all over the place. And I've listened to so. that, and it's got a lot, a lot of good information well, thank on you. your radio thank show. You. And they can listen to your radio program um, where? Here locally, they can catch it on 8.20 a.m. at 9.45 in the morning, and then it comes on again uh, at 9.30 in the evening. At 9.30 at night. A lot of good information there. And also, I'd also like to talk about a couple of your books. The first one, of course, I always bring this one up in their own words. It's my favorite book. Oh, thank you. <laughs> and it's just full of good information, and you want to tell our viewers about that, what they can I, I mainly that. wrote that as a resource for people who were interested in wanting to know what Mormons had said about certain subjects. Uh, not just Mormon leaders, of course we would say that those are the important people mm -hmm. when they say something, especially if it's a part of the First Presidency or the Quorum of the Twelve, certainly a Mormon should take notice what the leaders have said about these issues. But we also included uh, Mormon apologists, we included even some Mormon lay people, not because we feel that they're authoritative, but to give the reader an idea of what Mormons believe what about saying. this. And it goes clear back to what Joseph Smith, Brigham Young, and some of the early mm -hmm. Mormon leaders also said, and, uh, and their yeah. publications. Well, what's good about this is because the quotations are all bunched up under each topic, you can either see a pattern where among Mormon leaders where they are agreeing on this, mm -hmm. which tells you that this is pretty much an established understanding. But then again, you'll also notice uh, there's a lot of contradictions. You'll see the contradictions. And That's so great about it. the question then becomes, well, if these men are really prophets of God, why is it that their God can't seem to get the information the same to all these men? <laughs> you know. would think it would not change like that, yeah, but it does. Right, right, and God doesn't change, so that's a good question. And then your latest book, Answering Mormon's Questions. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that just came out um, a few months ago, and uh, that was uh, co-authored with Eric Johnson, who's worked with me for quite a while at MRM. Uh, he's, I give him all the credit for all the bells and whistles in that <laughs> book. He took what I did back in the, I first wrote that back in the 1980s, and so it's been over 30 years. And then I said, you know, we need, this thing really needs to be updated. It's been a long time uh, since we've done anything with it. And so we ended up uh, working together on it's really a completely mm -hmm. new book. Mm -hmm. Some of the questions are similar to what was in the old one, but a lot of the material is, is really up mm -hmm. to date. And it's a very good book. So yeah. if, Thank you. if anyone needs, has questions about uh, various parts of their faith or if they're even investigating Mormonism, and poly polygamy, of course, is involved with this because mm -hmm. they have the basic um, doctrinal beliefs mm -hmm. as the Mormon church does. So let's talk about those gold plates. Now, uh, for, for the people maybe who are watching that are not familiar with the story of the gold plates and, and and, and the importance that it is <clears throat> to everyone who perceives Joseph Smith as a prophet. Mm -hmm. Let's, what's the story of the gold plates? Well, Joseph Smith claimed that he was visited by an angel who called himself Moroni, and it was this Moroni who, come, coming back as a resurrected being, told Smith about some plates that he had actually buried in the ground not far from where Smith lived at that time. And this was supposed to be an ancient record of ancient inhabitants mm -hmm. and the source from whence they sprang. In other words, where did they come from? And Mormons, of course, believe that Joseph Smith eventually dug these plates up. He translated the plates uh, from the Reformed Egyptian into English. Mm -hmm. And that is what we have now today in, in what's known as the Book of Mormon. Mm -hmm. 
Mormons naturally assume that because Joseph Smith was directed by God to find these plates and to translate the, these plates, that that gives him credibility regarding his claim of being a true prophet of God. It's kind of a circular reasoning that I found many Mormons use. You, you'll ask them, well, how do you know Joseph Smith was a true prophet? Well, because he gave us the Book of Mormon. Well, how do you know the Book of Mormon's true? Well, because they were given to us by a prophet. Uh, that's not the best <laughs> logic to use, but many yeah. Mormons that I've talked to actually do use that kind of a, a thinking method. Yeah. The problem is, is there are a lot of problem areas when it comes to the Book of Mormon. Not only do we have these plates that are supposedly made out of the metal gold, and most Mormons that I do ask about this, mm -hmm. I, I'll ask them, I said, do you believe that the gold plates were really made out of the metal gold? Not, about 99% of the time, Mormon's going to say yes. Mm -hmm. Because that's what their leaders what have we actually taught, said. Yeah. Well, that's what the leaders have said, and that's what the angel actually said. When the angel appears to Joseph Smith, he said that they were written on gold plates. That's what he said, that's right. But Mormon apologists know that there's a problem with that. So what have the Mormon leaders said about it? <laughs> As, as far as the plates being made of gold? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't want to interrupt. Well, they stick to that story. Yeah. They stick to that story, but it's the apologists that have kind of taken the front stage on this. And they know that if the plates were actually made of the metal gold, there's a couple of problems with that. One, metal, the metal would be so soft it would be difficult to write on it. Mm -hmm. Even though the Book of Mormon talks about the, the Jaredite plates that were made of pure gold. Um, but they also know that the weight of the gold would be so incredible that Joseph Smith could not have possibly had done what he did in finding the plates, getting them out of the ground, and then eventually taking them to his house about three miles away. According to the story that has been repeated numerous times and is actually in correlated manuals, the story is, is that Joseph Smith had to carry these plates for a distance of three miles to get to his house. And as he was going home with the plates, he takes them out of the ground. He tucks them under his arm after wrapping them in a linen frock. Now he's tucking them under his arm and he heads for home. Mm -hmm. On the way home, he is accosted by a man who is hiding behind a log who hits them, who hits him in the back of the head with a gun. Okay. Now Smith gets into a struggle with this gentleman. Well, I shouldn't say gentleman, I, but he gets in, <laughs> you know, into a yeah. scuffle with this man. And somehow he is able, with the plates, to knock this man down in such a way to where he's able to run away from this person and who was trying to... carrying those plates. We have to assume, because if he was to have dropped them, they would have been ruined. See, a lot of Mormons don't realize just how soft gold is. Yeah. If you were to drop the gold plates and they hit, let's say, on a corner or on the side... That it would crush. You wouldn't be able to turn the pages, and also you couldn't be able to read anything that was near those pages that were eventually yeah, damaged. Yeah. So we have to assume that Joseph Smith somehow knocks this person down in such a way where he's not able to get up right away, and then he actually runs at the top of his speed, and this is a, an account that his mother tells, which is included in, in Mormon manuals. He runs at the top of his speed, able to get away from this person, and then it happens again. He is accosted by another person who is hiding to, to try and steal the plates. Smith gets in a scuffle with him. He's able to somehow, I guess, knock him down also, and then once again run at the top of his speed away from this attacker. And then it happens a third time. I 
goodness. Three times he, he is accosted. <laughs> oh, imagine. How old was he supposedly at this well, time? Well, at this time, you have to remember, this, this is 1827. So he, he's a young man in his early 20s. He's yeah. just not a young kid anymore. Yeah. And so uh, Smith is supposedly doing these incredible feats, all with these plates somehow either under his arm or even if they were in front of him, uh, trying to get away from these people who are bent on attacking them. And the whole story, to me, always sounded suspicious. Well, I have a question. How the ruffians even knew that he was out getting plates? Did he brag it around town? Did he publish something in the paper? Oh, everybody knew about get, the plates. Before yeah. he picked them up, yeah. before he dug them up, yeah. they knew that he had, was uh, going to How exactly, them? we're not told, but that's everybody kind of knew about the plates because that's why Joseph Smith was persecuted in the early years. Now, Smith said he was persecuted for having a, a visitation by God the Father and Jesus. That's not true. You won't find anywhere yeah. in the early years of the church that he was ever persecuted for that. That, right. does, that story doesn't even come about till way later. But he was being criticized for this alleged visitation by this angel who would come to him. Mm -hmm. and, and no doubt the word was getting around about this. Now, But you raise a good point because Smith said that when he gets the plates, he decides to get off the main road how would anybody know that he was going to get off the main road? And why are these three attackers waiting off the main road? You would think if the normal route was the main road, they would have been hiding there. But they're not. They're, mm -hmm. they're off somewhere else. There's a lot of very suspicious ingredients yeah, in this story. Yeah, like some of the other stories. That's mm -hmm. right. So do you think when, when Joseph Smith told this story, and we're going to get into the weight of the gold in a minute, but, but when he told, do you think he really understood the weight of gold when he no, came up with this story? I don't. I really don't. I, you know, he came from a poor family. Uh, they may have seen gold coins at some time, uh, but I don't think they had any idea just how heavy gold would have weighed. Uh, especially in the form that Joseph Smith describes. Because one of the things that I often hear from Latter-day Saints is, well, you have to understand that these were not machined in a way that they would have been perfectly flat, like the pictures that we often see, mm -hmm. that they would have had a little wrinkle to it. And, that, and that's probably true. The problem, of course, for that argument is that gold is very soft. It's very dense, but it's very soft. Well, if you start stacking these plates on top of each other, as soft as they are, at least towards the bottom, they would be flattening mm -hmm. out. Yeah, they would. Maybe not the very top, but certainly the bottom portion. And that becomes a real problem for Mormons who want to believe this story because they will say, well, it wasn't like a solid block of gold. Well, technically, if they were really made of gold, like Joseph Smith said or the angel said, then we have to assume, well, yeah, it kind of would have been like a block of well, gold. Well, and they, he described them as being yeah. gold, as gold plates. Well, yeah, but Smith comes around and he says, well, they had the appearance of gold. I hear this a lot from Latter-day Saints. Yeah. We'll say, well, it just had the appearance of gold. And I says, well, does gold have the appearance of gold? I mean, I don't, I don't understand how that argument really works when the angel himself said that the plates were made of gold. Yeah. You would think Moroni would know what the content was. He was there, I'm assuming, when they were made. <laughs> so you would think he would have known what they were made of. But again, it goes back to this 
problem for the, the Latter-day Saint apologists. They know the plates would have been too heavy, so they have to get the weight of the plates down to a manageable level, uh -huh. which right there tells you they don't believe there was any type of supernatural element involved to help Joseph Smith carry these plates. Well, if they, uh, that would make sense, or they wouldn't go to so much trouble to try exactly. and get the weight down. Yeah. And, and mm -hmm. you know, a lot of a common response, of course, from believers in Joseph Smith, uh, they gave Joseph Smith supernatural strength to carry the plates. And, and we know that God can do that. We know Certainly. He can give I get asked that question a but lot. Mm -hmm. If that happened, why did they go to such great lengths mm -hmm. to bring the weight down? And if God really did intervene, then why have they hunted for these possibilities? Mm -hmm. um, and and I want to bring up Samson right here in the okay. Bible, because God did give Samson great strength to do what he needed to do. And mm -hmm. I have some, uh, some, some quotes that I want to give our viewers uh, from the Bible that all of the, each time that Samson needed to use his great strength, God got the glory, mm -hmm. but not one time in Joseph Smith's story no, does don't. he ever say God gave him great right. strength. And the first one is in Judges 14, six, uh, verse 6, where it says, The Spirit of the Lord came upon him, that's Samson, in power, so that he tore the lion apart with his bare hands. Verse 19, Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon him in power, and he went down to Ashkelon and struck down 30 of their men. And then Judges 15, 14, the Philistines came toward him shouting, and the Spirit of the Lord came upon him in power. So God is getting the glory. God is getting the recognition for giving him power. Not once does Joseph Smith do that. And I think that's a great point. I think it, it needs to be emphasized that if it certainly was a miracle that was involved here, it would have to include not only Joseph Smith, it would have had to include Moroni, Okay, who had to carry those plates first. Yeah, why didn't and, he carry them for him, by the way? <laughs> and then we also have Emma, because Mormon historians have admitted that Emma talked about the plates and how she had to move the plates on the table in the Smith home. They were always covered up, uh -huh. but she actually moved them around in order to do her work, is what Richard Butchman says in his book, Rough Stone Rolling. So you have them, uh, Emma, you have Moroni, you have the eight witnesses who claim mm -hmm. that they hefted the plates. Now they probably could have lifted them. <laughs> if they were really gold, I tend to doubt it. If anybody has ever been to the uh, Utah Lighthouse Bookstore, Sandra has a set of lead plates. Mm -hmm. And lead is probably the more comparable metal to gold, but lead is even lighter than gold. And I have volunteer there on Saturdays when I'm in town, and it's interesting because people want to lift Sandra's plates. Her plates weigh 118 pounds. Most of the time when people go to lift the plates, they don't move. Yeah, <laughs> they don't move, yeah. and, and I've been asked more than once, are they bolted down? No, yeah, they're not. Yeah, yeah. You can move them, but I can guarantee you, you're not going to carry them very far. Right. And what's interesting about the weight of 118 pounds is that John Witzow, a Mormon apostle, he actually said, according to his estimation, if the plates were the size that Joseph Smith gave, and it had a 10% air gap in between each plate, the plates would have probably weighed about 117 pounds. An easy weight, he said, for someone like Joseph Smith to carry. And beat up three people and run three miles. <laughs> Obviously, John Witzow never tested out that theory, because it's <laughs> not an easy weight at all. It's not at all. And unfortunately, a lot of Mormons have not really thought 
through this story. They just naturally assume by the pictures that they see in the faith-promoting literature uh -huh, uh -huh. about Joseph Smith retrieving the plates from the angel with his outstretched arms. That He's not going to do that. Yeah, There's no way. Yeah. There's an account, I think it was Martin Harris, who said that when Joseph Smith finally got to his home after the three-mile trek through the off the main road, that he gave the plates to his mother through the window. Mm -hmm. Well, she must have been quite the, the strong person to be able to do that, that because would, it just yeah. wouldn't have happened that way. I, I, I think really the, the story is just incredible. Now, it's not that I don't believe that Joseph Smith didn't have something. Remember, they were always covered up. He could have had just about anything underneath whatever he was using to mm -hmm. cover it up at different times. Right. But the point that he's allowing people to think he has something uh -huh. that he doesn't really have is mm -hmm. problematic for me especially when I think about his wife. Yeah. Because I've often asked Mormons, I said, don't you think that a man that will lie to his wife will lie to anybody? Yeah. I mean, Emma never peaked, which is amazing willpower, if you ask me. Well, if he you threatened, know, you know, well, damnation course, from God or, you know, lightning bolt from heaven or something, that mm -hmm. he did well, that with as far as we, me. So. <laughs> well, as far as we know, she never peaked. Yeah. Although she does make an interesting statement at one time. It's recorded that... At one time when the plates were in the home, that she took her fingers and ran them across the edge, and they made a metal sound, a metallic sound. Mm -hmm. Well, that right there will tell you then the plates could not have been made of gold, yeah. because gold does not make a metallic sound. Yeah. In fact, even the lead plates, if you lift up one of the plates and let it go, it, it makes a thumping sound, but it's not a metallic sound, not like... Um, you know, sheets of tin, which is interesting, the comparison that Joseph Smith makes. Yeah. He says that the plates were about the thickness of common tin. So he probably did not know much about the properties of gold when he came up with the story for various reasons. No. So what's the discussion on the weight? What, what, what is the difference, first of all, in gold plates and golden plates? Yeah, well, they've been, using, <laughs> they've been using this argument, uh, I think it was last, last year, they came out with, a, or maybe it was 2011, it may have been 2011, I can't remember the date exactly, but uh, they came out in, with an Ensign magazine, and they were talking about the Book of Mormon, and they were talking about the plates, and, and one thing that, that Eric and I noticed was when they were talking about the, the makeup of the plates, they were using the word golden over and over and over again, and we thought, boy, they're, they're using this a lot. This isn't just a you know, a few times. It was many times. They kept saying golden. Mm -hmm. Now, I've noticed in a recent issue of the Ensign, they went back to gold. So, obviously, oh. someone's not getting the memo down at church headquarters when they're writing up these articles in the Ensign <laughs> because they need to make up their mind. What do they want the people to believe? That they were golden, meaning that was only the color? Mm -hmm. uh, or are they trying to get across to the people that the plates were actually made of gold? Because if it's merely color, there's a lot of Mormons that aren't catching that. They are still believing that it's actual metal. Mm -hmm. And Mormon leaders keep saying that. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm not hearing the leadership in general conference emphasizing golden, meaning merely the color. When you go back and you look at conference messages, you hear them using the word gold over and over mm -hmm. again. So mm -hmm. it's, it's understandable that the people would take that and, pardon the pun, but run with it, okay? <laughs> um, but that's what they're doing, uh, because I do ask them that. Yeah. I, I often ask them that. 
So what uh, the, the the apologists that have tried to bring the weight down, they've mm -hmm. they've got what you call the Tumbaga theory. That the Tumbaga theory was started really, I think, with a guy by the name of Reed Putnam, who was a Mormon metallurgist, and this was printed back in the Improvement era, years and years ago, which was a Mormon magazine at the time. And the Tumbaga theory caught on with the Mormon apologists because Putnam came up with this theory that the plates coming from Central America, now you have to remember, if you're going to go with the Tumbaga theory, you cannot believe in what's known as the heartland model for the Book of Mormon lands. A, a person like Rod Meldrum or a person like Glenn Beck could not use the Tumbaga theory because Tumbaga is a Central American alloy. People who hold to that usually do not believe that the Book of Mormon lands were up in the United States area, but were in a limited area down in Central America. That's why it's known as the limited geography mm -hmm. theory. And so this theory says that the plates were not made of pure gold, because they know that would be a problem. And so they say that the plates were really an alloy, probably mostly copper, and gold. Now you have to have gold in there because even copper by itself being buried in that harsh environment as it supposedly was mm -hmm. up in New York, over all the years that it would be in the ground, eventually the copper would start to decompose. Mm -hmm. It doesn't last forever. Gold is the one metal that seems to last for a very, very long time. Mm -hmm. Even Reed Putnam admitted that there had to be a substantial amount of gold in the alloy, otherwise the copper and the gold would form electrolysis and it would start to self-destruct. <laughs> so he estimated that it had to be at least one-third gold and the rest would be copper. Well, once you start putting gold back into the equation, you start adding on the weight. weight. Now, true, you get more of a tensile strength to the metal, but you need that gold in there for it to have that long lasting, you know, mm -hmm. um, it, to, to last that long. And so here's where they start getting into these really strange uh, hypotheses, for instance. Um, John Witzow, as I mentioned earlier, believed that the plates could have had a 10% air gap in between each plate. Mm -hmm. And that with a 10% air gap, he estimated that the plates would have weighed about 117 pounds. Well, Putnam, he says, we have to put a 50% air gap in between each plate. And by giving it a 50% air gap, and let's say it was only about 30% gold, then we could get the weight down to 53 pounds. Uh, <laughs> folks, 53 pounds is still too heavy. I have a set of plates that are merely 53 pounds, uh -huh. but they're, uh, they're made out of sheet metal and they're only four inches uh, high. The size that Joseph Smith gives us were, of course, six inches high, uh -huh. eight inches long, and uh, six inches wide. That was the dimensions that Joseph Smith gave. Mm -hmm. And taking Joseph Smith's measurements, I made my own set of plates mm -hmm. out of sheet metal, because I can't afford gold, uh, for <laughs> obvious reasons, and uh, can't afford the bodyguards either. Yeah. But I, I made some out of sheet metal. Now, sheet metal is, ex is much lighter than gold or lead. But even then, the plates still weigh about 80 pounds. Wow, and you brought those plates with you tonight. I, I do have them. I have them here, and are we going to have a, someone we, come in? Yeah, let's, let's <laughs> let our viewers see what your plates look okay, like. Okay, well, what we have here, if you want to see what they look like. Now, you'll notice that these plates look very similar to the pictures that you see in Mormon magazines and Mormon manuals. And, and are they the same size that Joseph Smith claimed Six they were? Six inches wide, six inches deep. 
eight inches long. Now I couldn't put the the loops in here because it just would have been too hard to make. Mm -hmm. So I just put a bolt through them and mm -hmm. a little uh, cap nut on the top. But this is the same size. Now a Mormon would argue, but see how flat your plates are. Well, yeah, they are. And they would say, well, they would, ours would be wrinkled. Now you want to be careful about that because if you want to use the argument that we have 50% air gap in between the plates, remember Smith only supposedly translated the top two inches. If you start putting a 50% air gap in between these plates, you're getting rid of plates that have that much needed space for the text to give us the Book of Mormon. The original 1830 edition Book of Mormon was about 580 pages long. That's paper. And even the paper pages is about an inch and a quarter thick. <laughs> he does this on two inches of metal plates that had to be engraven. Yeah. So the story really gets to be far-fetched very yeah. quickly. Very wild. So, so can you just pick those up? And can someone come and pick these up and see if our Do we have a buff farm boy? Are, I, that's yeah, what I always hear. A buff farm boy. That will come a buff farm and, girl. And prove so. that you can pick them up and run with them. They are heavy. They are very heavy. Yeah. And if somebody wants to kind of get an idea of what we are talking about, um, go take the battery out of your car uh -huh. and just hold it for a while. It's about this size. A lot of batteries are about this size. And you'll notice how quick that weight becomes very heavy. And yet we're supposed to assume, supposed to assume. that Joseph Smith was able to outrun three attackers on three different uh, occasions um, during the time from when he you, retrieved the do, plates. Could you run with those very far? No. No, way. <laughs> no a, a lot... A lot of Mormons can't. And you know what's amazing? When I have Latter-day Saints lift these plates, it becomes very apparent there's something wrong. There's something wrong. They, and I'll tell you, this is one of the best illustrations mm -hmm. that I have found in trying to get the idea across to Latter-day Saints that this story is not worth believing. Yeah. It's not it, worth believing. It definitely is not. There's too many, too many things. Thanks for trying yeah. to Thank lift you, those. Hope you didn't hurt your back or yeah. anything. Yeah. <laughs> but think about it, too. If Smith did not have the plates that he claimed to have. What does that say about his calling as a true prophet of God? Well, true, and if, and if, 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 he, would you, if you can't believe what he said about the plates, how can you believe what he said were written on the plates? And exactly. I would say this to polygamists, if you can't believe this, how can you believe what he said about polygamy mm -hmm. or anything else for Oh, that absolutely. I mean, this is a very important argument that a Mormon must hold on to, and it's amazing how many excuses that I will often hear from Latter-day Saints. And, and I, there's times when I've actually I've said to Latter-day Saints, do you hear yourself? Do you listen to what you're saying? Look at what you have to do to defend Joseph Smith's story. And they will come up with all sorts of excuses. And what I have to keep reminding the Mormons that I'm talking to when I'm using this demonstration out on the streets, is that notice I'm sticking to the story as it's actually written in your sources. Exactly. You are having to invent all sorts of information to try and make this story work. Every one of these excuses, however, has a very simple rebuttal. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, but they know that once they get rid of the plates, the whole it's church gone. starts to fall apart. It's they gone. know this. Yeah. Mormon leaders have said as much. Yeah. It's the same with the first vision. You get rid of those two elements, Mormonism collapses. Yeah. So they have to do whatever they can to protect this story. 
And, and it's, I, not, it's not worth protecting. I've heard uh, people say, faithful believers in Joseph Smith, ask, well, what does all this matter? What difference does it make? Uh, what the plates were made of, does that make what was written on them and what he translated less meaningful? Well, I think it goes back to what you said. If we, we find that he lied about the metal of the plates and he lied about having these gold plates, then obviously what he says was on the plates becomes suspect. We can't trust him any longer. And the fact that he is going around with these plates being covered up, I think, tells us a lot. Why can't you just show them that? Mm -hmm. and, and I'll have Mormons say, well, yeah, but what about the witnesses? They say they saw the plates. I go, really? Who told you that they saw the plates? We, we, we can talk about that after <laughs> okay. the break right. on the witnesses, okay. because we definitely need mm -hmm. to talk about that. But we see pictures of, of uh, Joseph Smith translating from the plate, mm -hmm. um, and of course these are Mormon church pictures right. and all that, but he actually didn't even translate from the plates anyway. It was no. with his hat. No, you, you will find that Martin Harris, David Whitmer, uh, his wife, Emma Smith, uh, his brother, William Smith, they all say that when Joseph Smith was translating the plates, that he used a seer stone, a rock, that he found while digging a well with his brother Hiram, mm -hmm. and he would put the rock into a hat, and he would draw the hat closely to his face to exclude the light, and as David Whitmer said, and in the darkness the spiritual light would shine, mm -hmm. something resembling parchment would appear, and on that appeared the writing. Smith would read the characters off to his scribe, and when it was read back uh, correctly, it would go on to the next set of characters. Mm -hmm. Well, right there we have no margin for error. Right. They have to be read back correctly before they go on to the right. next set of characters. But the question I ask Mormons, have you ever heard this story? Some of them have. I say, okay, well, if, if you've heard the story and if you believe that's how it was done, where are the plates in this story? Yeah. He's not looking at the plates. Right. Why would God put Joseph Smith through such potential peril to get the plates, and have people attacking him to get them home, and then he doesn't even need the plates in order to translate from Into them. the Book of Mormon, exactly. A lot of questions, too many questions. Well, it's time to open up our lines for um, uh, the telephone for phone calls from our viewers. And uh, our telephone number is 801-973-TV20, 801-973-8820. Give us a call. If you don't agree with what our discussion points have been tonight, give us a call and let's talk about it. Of course, we do require that you allow a two-way conversation if if you're when you call in and please turn your television volume down and while we're waiting for the calls to come in we do want to share our message with you you are watching polygamy what love is this broadcasting live from salt lake city utah this program is the broadcast outreach of a shield and refuge ministry Shield and Refuge is a point of first contact for Mormon fundamentalists who question the doctrines of the religion or who are actively seeking for an opportunity to escape the polygamist lifestyle. Examining the claims of fundamentalist doctrine against the backdrop of biblical truth is central to our efforts. We invite you to contact us. Call toll-free at 877-425-9993 or email us at TV at aboutpolygamy.com. We want you to know that we have made available to you some outstanding resources free of charge. You will find them at our website, www.whatloveisthis.tv. There you will find the DVD, Lifting the Veil of Polygamy, which documents the real-life stories told firsthand of those who were lifted out of the culture of polygamy through the power and love of Jesus Christ. Also, 
free of charge to you, is the booklet, Is Polygamy Biblical? It explores plural marriage in the context of God's Word and answers questions like, Did God ever command polygamy? Is it part of God's plan? While you are at our website, make sure to take advantage of the archived episodes of this program, which can stream on demand directly to your computer. There are more than 100 shows to choose from. And if someone you know is unable to view this program via live broadcast, recommend that they visit this same website every Thursday at 8 p.m. Mountain Time to watch this show through live streaming video. Simply follow the links to the live streaming video page. If you are watching live tonight, we invite you to call us as we open our phone lines. The number is 801-973-TV20. That's 801-973-8820. Now, back to Polygamy, What Love Is This? with our host, Doris Hansen. Welcome back to our program, Polygamy, What Love Is This? We've been discussing uh, with Bill McKeever, our guest from Mormon Research Ministry. <clears throat> Pardon me. <clears throat> Pardon me. Uh, the story of the gold plates that Joseph Smith claimed that uh, the angel Moroni told him where to go dig them up, and he ran home with them and then translated the Book of Mormon from them. And we are inviting our viewers to call in and ask your questions or make your comments regarding our discussion topic tonight. We'd love to hear from you, 801-973-8820. You know, we're often asked by people who are defending Joseph Smith, how could a young and uneducated boy possibly have produced such a magnificent document as the Book of Mormon if he didn't get it from God? Well, actually, I think that it's obvious that the Book of Mormon author was either writing a fictional novel and he knew it, or he was an uneducated boy who thought he could write history and blew it. So, Bill, let's talk about the witnesses. Okay. Supposedly, there's... Eleven? There's eleven. And, of course, uh, that is a very uh, hard piece of evidence that many Latter-day Saints feel uh, is very difficult to respond to. It's really not that difficult. We find that when we look at the documentary history of the church, and I happen to have uh, volume one right here, which actually talks about the three witnesses. There mm -hmm. were three, and then there were eight more uh -huh. that came about later on. When it comes to the three witnesses, now the three are the ones that actually are predicted. They're supposed to come and, and actually look at the plates. And we find, however, that when it came time for them to look at the plates, Joseph Smith is translating, and he ends up leaving where he was translating to go out into the woods with Martin Harris, Oliver Cowdery, and David Whitmer. First question, wait a minute, you're, you're translating in the house, why are you leaving the house where the plates supposedly are to go outside into the woods? But yet they go out into the woods and they're going to pray. They're going to pray in order to see the gold plates. Why do you need to pray to see tangible plates? That's right. I mean, you can see mine. Yeah. I mean, you don't have to pray about that. There they are. I mean, yeah. there they are. Why? Because they actually exist. Yeah. But he tells these three that you have to pray. And as they pray, they have this manifestation of the angel who is holding the plates. Now, the problem is, is it doesn't happen right away. And one of, the, one of the people involved, Martin Harris, feels that when they pray and nothing's happening, that it's because of him. So he decides to leave the group, and he goes a distance away. And then Joseph Smith prays with the other men, and then all of a sudden this angel appears with the plates. 
Later on, Joseph Smith claims that he goes over to find Martin Harris, and he prays with him there. And then the same uh, manifestation took place. But here's what it says. It, it says, We accordingly joined in prayer and ultimately obtained our desires, for before we had yet finished, the same vision was opened to our view. At least it was again open to me. Because remember, Joseph Smith had already seen them with the other man. Mm -hmm. Well, now he's seen them with Martin Harris. Mm -hmm. But notice it says, the same vision. vision. Yeah. So it doesn't say they're <laughs> what are they looking at? at all. No, yeah. no, they don't. And here's the thing. Um, Marvin Hill, who was a Mormon historian, he writes and he believes that just as the three saw the plates in vision, that was probably the same way that it happened with the eight. Mm -hmm. And there seems to be evidence to support mm -hmm. yeah, that. There so if they are only seeing them in vision, I don't think that's a very strong argument. And what I've often said to Mormons is I'll say, what if somebody uh, had accused you of committing a crime? And when they got up on the stand, they said that they saw you do the crime, but they saw it in a vision. Would anybody take them serious? Take him seriously? Would any jury in their right mind convict you right. of that crime if the primary witness saw you do the crime in a vision? Yeah, so why would we accept it in any, in any other way? Great if, question. I, I think that's fair. And I, and I think Mormons need to understand why we are so skeptical about this mm -hmm. story. See, we don't come to the table with the presupposition already that Joseph Smith is a prophet. I'm still in the testing stage for this guy. He has to prove himself to be <laughs> yeah, a prophet before I'm going to go and, and believe sure. what he says. But you see, sadly, a lot of Mormons have already taken that leap. Yeah. And this clouds their thinking, sadly. We need to be patient with Mormons who are thinking this way. But at mm -hmm. the same time, I think we need to be firm with the evidence that we present. The evidence has to be presented. We are supposed to test it all. Well, we do have some callers here waiting, so let's take a leap on this one. We have line one, James calling from North Ogden. Hello, James. Uh, good evening, Doris. Yes. Uh, I was curious. The Book of Mormon was written in Reformed Egyptian. Is there anybody that knows about this language? I mean, to my knowledge, you know, there's no Egyptologist or Egyptian historian or anything that admits to any documentation or even this language existing other than what Joseph Smith said. Uh, I'll get off the air and let you toss it around and I'll listen to what your response is on Okay. On Thank, Thank you. God bless you. Thank you, James. Okay. I know what of no that? Egyptologist who knows of Reformed Egyptian. Um, I've heard Mormon apologists try to do some incredible gymnastics with the English language on this. But you have to also know that some of the characters that were on the plates were actually copied down. So we do have some of the characters of what this Reformed Egyptian supposedly looked like. Nobody that I know of can translate this. Nobody has ever seen this. In fact, if you look at the letters very carefully, it looks like it looks like something that a child would do. I'm sorry, I know that sounds harsh if you're a Latter-day Saint, but really, it looks like something a child would do. You know, letters like being backwards or upside down, sideways, whatever. Uh, and this is supposed to be 
an, an actual language well, that nobody's ever heard of and, before. And it just goes along with everything else that has to do with this story and with the, the Book of Mormon itself. Uh, there's just no evidence for right. anything that has to do with it at all. And this is just another piece of non-evidence. Mm -hmm. no, yeah, absolutely. And, and that's dangerous. Yeah, it is dangerous. dangerous. Okay, so the answer to the question is nobody, no linguist in the world knows anything about Reformed Egyptian. All right, line two, John calling Salt Lake City. Hello, John. John, you must turn down the volume of your TV. We'll go on to the next caller if you don't do that. Hello, John? Yes. Yes, you're on the air. Okay. Yes, uh, from, am I on the air? You're on the air, John. What's your question? Hey, um, I have a question. Um, I've heard that, you know, there's several different stories about um, what age he was when he found the plate that he was uh, 16 and then 17 and 18 and had different, um, different ages. And that uh, the original story that he came out with, uh, the age that he was when he said that he first had the uh, vision and he went and saw the fight for the first time, I guess, before he even uh, got the fight out of the ground. Um, they'd done a survey uh, well, with the, the government survey of the roads in those days, uh, the time that he said that they uh, actually, he actually first went up and saw the place, and that there wasn't even a road to that area yet, or that so there couldn't even have been no cabin yet. The cabin wasn't built until a couple of years later. Is that true? Hmm. I've heard that story before. I, I have not studied it enough to, to give you an opinion on that. What, one thing we do know, though, John, is that Smith was born in December of 1805. He's not allowed to retrieve the plates until 1827, so we can just do some simple math and we get a pretty good understanding of how old he would have been at that time. And like I said, he was a young man in his early 20s. He certainly was not to be thought of as a, a naive young teenager at that time, because that certainly couldn't have been the case. He could have very easily developed this whole story. And the idea that we, uh, or I should say the theme that we find on the gold plates, supposedly, that became the Book of Mormon, was really not all that original anyway. The idea of people coming across the ocean and settling on this continent was, was not all that original with the Book of Mormon. There were other authors that had had those kind of theories as well. So I, I wouldn't take that as, as strong evidence at all. Well, it does seem awful hard for me to believe it, too, because they've, uh, he changed his story so many times. I've read about mm -hmm. five different stories and so many about uh, different people saying different things that he said about mm -hmm. the original place and what he said and what he saw and, and the angels and, you know, all of that. So you can't, if you can't believe that, what can you believe? Well, thank you, John. We appreciate your call and, and your question. You bet. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Okay, we have line three, Brian calling from Salt Lake City. Hello, Brian. Brian? Sounded like he went away. Hello, Brian, are you there? Well, he didn't want to answer. Okay, we have an interesting call coming in on line one. Charles from Orem, he said he made Sandra's plates. Hello, Charles. Huh? Yes, hello, Doris. Good evening to you. Hello, how are you? Enjoying your show very much this evening. Thank you. And your guest, Bill. Uh-huh. This must be Charles Larson. I think it is. Okay. 
Hello. Good to hear from you. <laughs> yes, I, uh, I, I have to say that you're discussing a subject that's very near and dear to my heart and is like a, a blast from the past. I'll, I'll share something with your guest. Back in about 1981, I am the fellow who uh, actually made those lead plates that are in Sandra's store that he sees every week. Mm -hmm. Sandra told me that. <laughs> You're notorious. <laughs> yes, it's, uh, it's, it's quite a hefty thing. It is. I, I have to say, Doris, I, I really enjoyed the point that you made about the, uh, the super strength, how Joseph Smith never gave credit to God for that. Something that uh, I have often pointed out to Mormons who try to raise that issue is that isn't it peculiar that, that if God gave Joseph Smith super strength to handle these plates and he was so cavalier about it, why on earth didn't God give Joseph Smith super strength to lift the rock that was hiding them? He had to get a lever to do that. <laughs> good point. Now that's a good point. Touche. Yeah. Uh, there, there are many good points on it. But yes. anyway, wonderful discussion tonight, Bill. You do wonderful work. I'm, I'm very, very Thank you, pleased to, to see you on there tonight. And I'll let you guys go. Thank and you. Say hello to Sandra for me next time. We'll do that. There, okay? And we'll thank you, Charles. Thanks for calling. And, of course, Charles has been on our show before. He's been a guest on our show a couple of times. He's the one who wrote the book, uh, Questioning the Book of Abraham mm -hmm. by his own hand upon papyrus, yeah. proving that, of course, the Book of Abraham also has been a false translation. Mm -hmm. um, uh, another story of Joseph Smith that we right, just have to put to right. the question, mm -hmm. you know, of what was Well, think about, about it. If Joseph Smith got away with the Book of Mormon, why couldn't he get away with another one? And he did, and, and, he, and did, he did, and he did. Well, it looks like we might have Brian back on line three. Let's see if we can get him to answer this time. Hello, Brian. Yes. You're on the air, Brian. Hi, thank you for taking my call. You're um, welcome. I am not LDS, never have been. But I was tuning into your show this evening and listening um, to you guys uh, trying to disprove or just deflate the Book of Mormon, you know, by saying that Joseph Smith uh, there's no way he could have carried these 160, 170-pound plates 200. Um, out of the mountains and at the <laughs> same time, you know, fight off um, any attackers. My question for you is, how is how is that bizarre story any different than the stories that you hear in the Bible, uh, say, as Jonah sitting in the belly of a whale, or... Mm -hmm. David fighting off Goliath, or Moses speaking to God through a bush on fire, or the ark. I mean, in my opinion, you guys are trying to deflate the Book of Mormon, whereas that exact same arguments could be made against the Bible. Mm -hmm. Well, do you believe in a God at all, Brian? Um, you know what? I'm kind of on the fence with it. Okay. Well, if there is a God, and, and we've talked about this earlier in the show when it comes to supernatural involvement by God, certainly there are miracles in the Bible, and if we believe in a God who's powerful enough to create the universe and mankind and everything that's in it, then obviously he's powerful enough to do things that are outside of what is natural. The difference, of course, between what you're talking about in the Bible is that we would recognize a lot of these things to be a supernatural event. We can't do that with the Book of Mormon story. It, it's just, that's not being allowed because of, as we've discussed, the way that Mormon apologists themselves have understood the plates that could not be gold and, and things like that. So there's a difference between the two. 
and we're, we're ready to recognize we do believe in miracles. I mean, right. uh, that's one of the questions that Mormons often will say. They'll mm -hmm. say to me, well, don't you believe that, that God could have parted the Red Sea through Moses? I say, absolutely, I believe that he could. That, that would be really a, nothing for the God that I believe in to mm -hmm. accomplish. The problem, of course, is there's no miracle element in this story. The right. Mormon has to make that up in order to make the story work. And also, uh, the, the product, the end product of this story is the Book of Mormon, which he claims to be from God, and yet there's no evidence for the Book of Mormon. There's no historical end evidence, no linguistical Linguistic? evidence, mm -hmm. no biological evidence, no spiritual evidence. There, there are no, no evidence whatsoever for anything in the Book of Mormon, period. And so, but there is for the Bible. So yes. we, we need to take it at, at that, you know, at, at what it represents for that. But the Bible talks about if real people and real events. We have one more thing. There are several people out there that could say that there's very little evidence um, in the Bible. Um, of course, if you believe it, then of course you're going to find evidence. If you don't believe in it, then you're going to question that evidence. Well, are, you, well, are you talking about people like Bart Ehrman? <laughs> sure. Okay, well, have you ever, Brian... Brian? My, my point is, it does not, it, it seems as though you guys are, are arguing against the same issues that... Okay, this, that but Brian, let me, let me respond to this, Brian. Could argue with you guys about. Okay. Brian, let, let me respond to this, because we're running out of time. I get a lot of people, they'll bring up the arguments of Bart Ehrman, yet I will ask them, have you ever read a scholarly response to people like Bart Ehrman? The answer is usually no. Many very qualified scholars have responded to Ehrman's arguments and found them to not be as strong as most people think they are. So I think when we're going to raise an argument like that, let's at least acquaint ourselves with the rebuttals to those arguments before we naturally assume that a person like Bart Ehrman has the upper hand. Yeah. Because people like Daniel Wallace and other very competent scholars would very very well argue that they don't have the strong arguments that people think. Okay. Well, hey, thanks for taking my call. I hey. appreciate it. Great. You have a good night, yeah. Brian. Thanks for calling. Thank you for calling. And, and I've heard that before, too. I'm sure you've heard it many, many times, that why, why can't these things have happened within the early Mormons, uh, but not just this, but many mm. other stories that they tell. If, if they, why can we believe they happen in the Bible if they, and yet do not deny? But, you know, the, the thing with, with uh, the, the, the stories of Joseph Smith is none of them ring true. Mm -hmm. No matter how often uh, we go through it and, over and try to make it work, it doesn't. Right. Yeah, it, I agree. I agree. It becomes very problematic. Yeah. You have to really want Joseph Smith to be a true prophet to come up with some of these arguments that mm -hmm. we hear. To answer the questions. Um, it's been said that we can't believe someone about this. If we can't believe someone about the small and unimportant things, uh, why should we believe him about the important things? Mm -hmm. Either Joseph Smith was a prophet or he wasn't. There's mm -hmm. no middle ground. There's no middle ground. There's right. no. Sometimes he was and sometimes he wasn't. There's no excuse for his failures, and for his uh, his deceitfulness. Yeah, he he sets the stage and he sets the bar way too high, and then he doesn't meet his own standard. Yeah. So. Yeah, that's true. Uh, well, it's... Um
looks like that we're at the end of the show, Bill. Thanks. Fast. Thanks for joining <laughs> us. Thanks for again. having me. You've given some good information. I want to thank our viewers for watching. Uh, did you know that the Bible says that there is only one faith and that that one faith was here long before Joseph Smith was here and continues long after Joseph Smith's been dead and buried? One faith, which was once and for all given to us and given only once because God promised that it would never be lost and God keeps these promises. It was given once for all people and it was given through the word of Christ and not through gold plates. These alleged gold plates, if they exist, at all are totally worthless when compared to the faith that God has once for all given. 1 Peter 1.7 tells us that our faith is of greater worth than pure gold. Gold perishes, but this true saving faith will never perish, and this faith is the only means that enables a sinner to enter into God's kingdom glory. This entrance into glory is available only because of the precious blood of Jesus Christ, which was shed on the cross for our sins. Faith in His blood is the only way to be acceptable into God's kingdom. It's the only way. Plates of gold have nothing to do with anything because God gave his word thousands of years before Joseph Smith's gold plates. And when he gave his word, he promised that it would remain forever and forever and would never fail. So plates of gold are irrelevant and they are worthless. But our faith is not irrelevant and not worthless. Saving faith is our ticket to heaven. We plead with our viewers not to cling to worthless ideas and stories and fine-sounding arguments. Instead, we seek God and His saving faith, which is priceless and is our only ticket into His eternal glory. Thanks for watching and happy Valentine's Day. Good night. This has been the audio podcast edition of Polygamy, What Love Is This? This program is a production of A Shield and Refuge Ministry and Main Street Church of Brigham City. You can view current and past video episodes as well as download audio episodes of this program at whatloveisthis.tv. If you or someone you know is in need of assistance in leaving a polygamous situation, please contact us. We are here to help. All of our contact information can be found at shieldandrefuge.org or call us at 877-425-9993. If you have any questions or comments about this or any of our other programs, we'd love to hear from you. Write us at email at whatloveisthis.tv. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us again.